What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Meet Alicia Wormsley. I didn't think that there was going to be this controversy. Alicia is an artist from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have a very science fiction, mystical perspective. In 2017, she became a news story when she unveiled a new public artwork in the historically black and now gentrified area of East Liberty. You know, with its own business economy, where you get your mixtapes, your tennis shoes. There was like an old YMCA that we used to break into and have raves. And now none of that is there. Now there's an Ace Hotel and there's sushi restaurants. It's like that kind of change. One of the last buildings to be bought by developers was the former site of a nightclub called the Shadow Lounge. It was like this kind of grounding space for Black people. And it got outpriced. On top of the building was a billboard. This wire-framed, very old-school billboard that has letters that you slide on, almost like Wheel of Fortune or something. The new landlords had been persuaded to turn it into a platform for local artists to showcase their work. There's no signage, there's nothing. It just texts on a billboard. You can go through all the billboards, and there's things about the war in Iraq. There's things about the Bush administration. Alicia was invited to exhibit a statement that she had been using in her artwork over the last few years. And I was really excited. This is, <laughs> this is like the perfect way to present this text. It was a phrase just seven words long. There are Black people in the future. There are Black people in the future. It's just a fact. Despite this being a fact, there were negative reactions to the statement. The landlord found a clause in the lease that said if it's political, they can take it down. So they took it down. And the artwork became big news. Neighborhood tensions have been simmering over gentrification in East Liberty, but boiled over with the removal of this billboard. With community members highlighting the bigger picture. If you're afraid of a sign that says that there are black people in the future, you have to reflect on why you're afraid that there are black people now, because we are here. You know, I was surprised, but then not surprised. The fact that people are threatened by this really reflects our existence. That really says how threatening just the idea of black people being in the future is. The city of Pittsburgh protested. All the organizations, all of these groups, they all have my back. We had some community meetings about it, and people were like, you know, I feel like that billboard. I grew up here, my grandparents grew up in this neighborhood, and I'm not welcomed here anymore. The work was born from a residency that Alicia had done in a local school. Kids could just come in and, like, we make stuff together. I showed them all the science fiction films that I loved as a kid, and they're like, there's no Black people in these science fiction films. So she set out to enable local kids to develop their own film projects. 
zombies were really big at the time and, and they wanted to make zombie films. So we walk around and they'd be like, oh, this is a perfect set for the zombie film. It looks like an apocalypse. And that like really hit me. And I'm like, this is a neighborhood. This is where we live. Why does it look like an apocalypse? And, you know, and the kids would be like, oh, because they don't care about Black people. And I started to talk to the kids about it. And they started asking questions and thinking about, like, why are these houses allowed to fall apart here? And other neighborhoods, they would be torn down. Why don't we have businesses here anymore? What happened? When I grew up there, I was, like, told of this legacy that was there. All these educators, first Black judges, all these musicians, all these people that came out of Homewood and I was talking about it with my partner and I was ranting about it. And I was like, you know what? There are Black people in the future. And, and that stuck. For Alicia, the message to her community was clear. How can we even think about the future if we're just living from day to day, if we're just surviving? We don't have any representations of ourselves in these future spaces. It starts to get people to question, why do we even have to say that? And then even questioning the discomfort they feel around that phrase and why they feel that discomfort and what it means so that we can all like be in the future. This question around why there was so much discomfort about the mere suggestion of there being Black people in the future, and the need for Alicia to even make this work, is at the heart of our time at the Academy today. Throughout the series, it's often been like we're looking through a telescope far backwards and far forwards. And as we've seen in our long-time explorations of politics and the economy, all too often, the view through that telescope is a decidedly colonial one. And today, we're going to look at how colonialism has got inside all of our heads and shaped our lives by turning our gaze onto the telescope itself. Doing this will show us how it is a colonial tool that has the power to limit the way we see the past and imagine the future. So, welcome to part five, decolonizing the future. Decolonization is a term that's become increasingly common since the historic global uprisings of 2020 in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. But for a long time, people have been challenging the colonial values and white supremacy of the systems that dominate our lives. From the police, to finance, to healthcare, to the ill-gotten exhibits of the museums and galleries we visit, to the statues that crowd our public spaces, to the history we're taught at school and university, to the future. And that is what we are going to focus on today. How the future is being colonised, decolonised, and in some cases even recolonized. To do this, I'm very excited to welcome a co-convener with me into the Longtime Academy. I'm uh, Dr. Lonnie Brooks, professor at Cal State East Bay, professor in communication, research affiliate with the Institute for the Future. I study Afrofuturism, and I'm also a co-organizer for the Black Speculative Arts Movement in California and Oakland. And I'm a Gemini, so if I'm not doing 20 different projects, then I don't know who I am. <laughs> that feels very familiar. 
I am really excited to be diving into what it means to decolonize the future together and to get to play a game that you have co-created at the end of the episode. Yay. <laughs> so you really are another longtime nerd. Definitely. I mean, I grew up with uh, Star Trek posters on my wall, so that's definitely true. I'm curious to hear your reaction. Why do you think people were so unsettled by this idea that there are black people in the future? You know, white supremacy is a conversation that's lasted about 500 years, right? And still with us today. So that any threat to that is expressed in the backlash. You know, as we ascend in power and express ourselves, we literally proclaim ourselves into the future. We proclaim ourselves now, like we saw in the movement for Black Lives globally, it's seen as threatening. And I think, you know, on the one hand, there were members of the community that were unsettled by it, but then there were also a lot of people who were empowered by the phrase. And, you know, it got picked up, taken around the world, used in activism and at the BLM protests. And so what do you think is empowering about that phrase, there are Black people in the future? Well, I love it. It just reminds me of the story of Nichelle Nichols in Star Trek. She played Lieutenant Uhura, and it was the first year they had wrapped up the first season. She went to Gene Waddenberry, the producer of the show, and she said, Gene, I, I really love what we're doing here, but I think I'm ready to go on. I want to go to Broadway. She was getting so many offers. And he was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Think about it. Take a weekend. Slow down. <laughs> so she goes to an NAACP fundraiser in Beverly Hills. It's a civil rights organization that advances civil rights for Black people in the U.S., and someone taps her on the shoulder and says, there's someone that wants to speak with you. So she goes, and who does it appear to be? But it's Martin Luther King. And he was like, just raving about her show. He was like, great to meet you. You're the only TV show I allow my children to watch. You know, and she said, oh, thank you, thank you. I'm thinking about leaving the show right now, but thank you for that. And he said, wait, if you leave the show, there's not going to be any Black people in the future. That's the real point of this, is that it's so important to see ourselves expressed in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and Lonnie, I think before we talk about decolonizing today, it would be really good to get your definition of what colonialism is. So really how I understand the colonial project is, you know, a vision of Europeans and white people as the superior beings on the planet, right, that can then have almost a religious right as a justification to colonize, enslave, kill, murder, perpetuate genocide, to take lands from other beings for 500 years. It's just stunning to understand that from 1492 and onward that millions and millions of Native Americans were wiped off the planet. Literally, by the time the U.S. was formed, the Americas did look like a wild frontier. So that is really how I understand the colonial project, really something that lives with us today in the very way that we breathe and live it. You know, it's the culture of white supremacy that we just grow up in and our minds are shaped by. But it is something that was invented and it's something that can be dismantled. How do we ideate out of white supremacy into a variety of alternative futures that are about healing ourselves and healing others?
In order to create alternative futures, we first need to really understand the past. And it turns out that time itself has been used as a tool for enforcing white supremacy. As we had seen land as being a terra nullius, so we pretended that we saw time as a tempus nullius and we imposed our idea of time colonially across the world as an invisible but very, very significant part of empire. This is Jay Griffiths, who you heard in part two. As an author, Jay has explored how time is seen around the world. She explains that it's no accident that the Western notion of time has become so widespread. It was an intrinsic part of colonialism used to dominate and control. Native American people used to refer to Captain Clock because they said that when the missionaries first arrived in their lands, the missionaries would consider that they were in charge, but that they themselves were subject only to one thing, and that was the clocks. What modernity is doing is driving this kind of coercive, cruel, crushing speed over all the varieties of time in the natural world and driving it over all the cultural varieties of time. So, for example, Maori people in New Zealand, they consider that they walk backwards into the future facing the past because you can see the past, but you can't see the future. It doesn't exist. Cultures which had siestas were were reprimanded in many ways for so-called wasting time according to this British idea that work time and factory time was all. In Greenwich, there was a so-called master clock that sent out signals to slave clocks. An absolutely excruciatingly perfect image of the empire itself. In order to achieve total domination, colonial powers have always tried to destroy the local cultures they encounter. Undermining local approaches to time and imposing a monoclock was part of this. And let's make no mistake, this is not something confined to the past. We often talk about colonization in the past tense, but it is very much alive and well. But if we're going to get serious about decolonizing the future, we first need to become aware of how colonization shapes the present. And so I'd like us to sit down for a while with Joshua Virasamy. He's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter UK and also the author of How to Change It, a book about the power of people and movements. We're meeting him in the heart of Bloomsbury, an historic area in the centre of London. It's a gorgeous sunny day and we're just inside the gates of a lush garden in Russell Square surrounded by these imposing big white houses with grand neoclassical pillars. It looks picture postcard beautiful, but these buildings were built using money from slave-derived wealth. When you walk around, you can really feel it. You know, the grandeurs, on one level, you can be like, wow, you know, that's quite astonishing. And on another level, it's like, it's just dripping with blood everywhere, right? And it never stopped dripping with blood. A lot of the things which we enjoy today, which we think are natural and should be enjoyed by people, 
a lot of those riches are through continued aggressive extraction of resources. A lot of it began during colonialism. Most of the products we consume here rely on the hyper-exploitation of the majority of the world's people in the global south. Over 80% of the global workforce in the global south is hyper-exploited by American and European multinationals that also, by the way, don't pay tax here. You know, they also hate us. <laughs> yeah, like my phone. It's almost an extension of my body now. Mm. And yet, this phone, like, I am sure the production of this phone will have involved all kinds of exploitation, right? Mm, yeah. What, what phone is it? It's an iPhone. The true cost of an iPhone is over $30,000 if everyone's paid how we're paid here, if resources are valued at the right value. So all of that money that's shaved off is exploitation that's deferred onto people further down the line. The other way colonialism shows up today is in climate devastation. The continued fact that the majority of the effects of climate change are felt on nations that are least responsible for it. If we continue to plunder Africa to the tune of tens of billions, then how will they ever be able to build up themselves to weather climate change? A climate change that they're not responsible for. This kind of environmental colonialism also shows up much closer to home. Where I was born and where I lived for the first few years of my life was on a tower block in West London next to these sewage works. Really, really disgusting, stank all the time. Fundamentally, it's quite a serious form of environmental pollution. I actually found out recently that a number of the residents made it a human rights issue and they actually got paid out. That tower block where I lived, it housed a lot of migrant communities. That's where a lot of us were put when we were put in social housing. And it's no coincidence, right, that families like ours would live next to huge sewage works or next to the biggest motorways. What in America they actually call national sacrifice areas. Racialized communities, you know, what some people call the global south and the global north, those migrant communities, they receive the same experience, which is that they're expendable. A lot of what made colonialism possible was this idea of the complete inferiority of the people who are being colonized. Just genuine belief that they're savages, that they're not human. Why is my family put into that building? Because there's, there's a continuing lineage of understanding that some people are actually disposable. People are so enraged and on the streets for Black Lives Matter because they feel dehumanized. These movements, they're very much a continuation of resistance against an unbroken line of you know, colonial violence. And it's not just about rethinking and questioning those colonial modalities in your mind, but it's also about how do we undermine that materially? Undermine it in your mind, and then what am I going to do to, to counter this parasitic relationship in the world? And I guess that links to this idea of what does internal colonialism look like? Mm. I think what colonialism looks like in all of us who live in the West is a series of like apathies, that colonial okayness with things. It's like, oh wow, it's over $30,000 for that phone. You know, like, that's really messed up, yeah. And then we go on. And I think that's how a lot of colonialism plays out. And I think that's why Martin Luther King was so, you know, obsessed with this word silence, you know? It's an incredibly powerful action. So decolonization is the sovereignty over land and liberation of ourselves from the shackles of colonial thinking, from dehumanization. 
It's a revolutionary process of coming back to what it means to be human. What is the promise of the human? What can we become? Freeing ourselves spiritually, psychically from the grip of colonialism. The reality is the future in many ways is knocking on our door pretty hard right now. So we need to cast our eyes back a bit and think about at that time when there was another future on the cusp, what could it have been? And then we bring it to now, all the things we know about where we stand and, and we should sit together and we should think, what is the future we want to create? And it's on us to kind of play imaginatively with this idea of what the future can be. So colonialism is alive and kicking. It is threatening the futures of billions in very material ways. From actually killing people to impoverishing them, taking land and resources, destroying cultures and denying folk the ability to determine their futures. And on top of that, it's also threatening most of life on Earth. For me, colonialism does this by playing two tricks. It shapes our outer worlds, the very foundations of how we live our lives materially and systemically, and also our inner worlds, the ways we think, imagine, and dream. So in short, we need to decolonize and fast. But before we go full speed ahead, our next visitor to the Academy cautions us about the dangers of valuing speed above all else. If urgency is what got us into these conditions, will urgency be the thing that gets us out or do we need to try a different relationship to time? Maybe an older relationship to time, a pre-clock relationship to time. Adrian Marie Brown is a writer, social justice facilitator and doula based in Detroit. One of the most beautiful things I've gotten to be a part of in my life has been different movements for social justice and black liberation. And one of the things I've noticed in those spaces is that when we have a good relationship, when we spend time building with each other, all of those different ways of thinking and ways of being, we can produce something that is beyond what any one of us could have done. The truth doesn't respond well to being rushed. There's a central question that guides all her work. Whose imagination are we living in? There's a lot of ways of seeing Black people in the future. And do we want to see them in a post-prison future, a post-homeless future, a post-capitalist you know, future? Like, what kind of future do we mean? Speculative fiction has removed the constraints that I didn't even realize were there on my imagination and on my way of thinking about solutions. Even the idea that whatever the future holds is in part in my hands is, to me, such a radical re thinking of what I was raised inside of, which was, this is how things are. These are the rules. These are the structures. These are the constructs. We think of institutions while we're caught inside of them as permanent. And one of the thoughts I've been thinking a lot lately is kind of geological. Like, I'll think about the Grand Canyon here in the U.S., how you can see the exposed history, all the layers that we have lived through. And it humbles me, but also gives me comfort to think that at some point, capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy and gender structures and the prison system and all of it will be layers of detritus, you know, inside of that canyon where it's just like, oh, that's artifact. 
Speculative fiction allows me to travel far enough into the future to already feel the artifact nature of the now. And it doesn't feel so scary. There are many, many speculative fiction writers that have inspired Adrian, But there's one writer who's influenced her more than anyone. Octavia Butler was a black science fiction writer. She wrote 12 novels and a collection of short stories that were published during her lifetime. She got inspired to write when she was nine years old, and she saw a sci-fi movie called The Devil Girl from Mars, and she was like, I can do better than that. (laughs) Early on, she was very much a solitary Black female voice in the genre. But before she passed away 15 years ago, she had won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the MacArthur Genius Grant. She was someone who cast predictions for her own life, that she would be a best-selling author, that she would um, start scholarships for other young Black writers. All these things came to pass. And in 2020, Octavia Butler finally hit the New York Times bestseller list with her book, Parable of the Sower. It's the first in a series of books beginning in California in 2024 that have become famed for their prescience. She foresaw a presidential candidate who ran on the slogan, Make America Great Again, and talks about how we survive apocalypse. The apocalypse in these books, written almost 30 years ago, is caused by global warming, drought, rising sea levels, widespread addiction to pharmaceutical drugs, and unchecked technological advances. Perhaps it's no wonder that she seems to be speaking to readers now more than ever. I used to just straight up say, she's a prophet. How did she understand this stuff? She really paid attention to the patterns of her time. And she was really honest with herself about what humans are like. And at some point, I realized that I was reading them not just for pleasure, but also for strategy. Adrian began using Octavia Butler's deeply prescient ideas to help build social movements that make change happen. I thought that she was seeing some ways that we could begin to practice things anew. She wrote us warnings, you know? And so I felt like in my work, trying to harness the warnings but point towards solutions. For Adrian and many other social activists around the world, Octavia Butler's work provides a blueprint for how we can build a less colonial future in the real world. Her protagonists are almost all young Black women. They were interdependent. They were adaptive. They really practiced decentralized leadership. They have already figured out, like, there's something beyond what is right now, and I am responsible for helping bring it to pass. Octavia's stories challenge so many of the values that the colonial mindset has us think are innate truths. She teaches us the fatal flaw of humans is that we use our intelligence to constantly enact hierarchies over each other. How do we not articulate a vision of the future that is trying to upset those hierarchies by creating new ones? How do we actually remove the tendency towards hierarchy? That concept is so important to me in the work that I'm doing for social justice. One way of removing the tendency towards hierarchy is rejecting this idea that one worldview has to dominate. What happens if instead many worldviews coexist? Perhaps the most interesting thing about human beings is that we carry so much complexity. Most other species on the planet fundamentally follow similar rhythms, similar patterns, similar structures, similar ways of being. And we have such huge divergence within our species. 
Sometimes I really do feel like I'm much closer relative to an ape than to someone else my age who just holds a different politic. (laughs) You know, like there's just such divergence. And as Octavia said, can we embrace the differences amongst ourselves? What is the strength of that? What is the miracle of that? What is good about that? I have a tattoo that is one of Octavia's verses, which is all that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. It helps me. (laughs) All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. With the words of Octavia Butler resonating in our ears, let's take a moment to return to Adrian's guiding question. Whose imagination do you think you're living in? And how does that feel? So Lonnie, I love how Adrian is working to connect these speculative Afrofuturist ideas with social change in the real world today. And when you arrived at the Academy, you described yourself as an Afrofuturist. What do you mean by that? Well, I think what gives me more um, sustenance and optimism is Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism... Um, combine science fiction and fantasy to re-examine how the future is uh, currently imagined and to envision alternative futures based on the Black experience. It offers a cosmology of decentering whiteness and Eurocentric motifs to see the letting go of a colonial mentality to increase like a Black state of consciousness um, that sees ourselves as powerful human beings on the planet and to see how much of our culture has really influenced the world, right? You could call Afrofuturism a type of slow politics. In facing colonization, we take Afrofuturism as a framework to build a future beyond that. But it's a global movement alongside Indigenous futurism and queer futurism. One of the ideas that really stands out is the importance of embracing and cultivating diversity instead of these monocultures of colonialism. Really, it's this idea of erasure that happened in colonization. So decolonization means the restoration of land and power and cultural recognition to those marginalized peoples whose land and culture were erased and taken away. They spoke their language, practiced their music, and even practiced their religions. So in the wake of Afrofuturism, we get indigenous futurism, a restoration of the imagination of Native Americans, because so many people think that Native Americans are no longer exist. I'm Native American too. So, you know, I'm here. (laughs) We're here. (laughs) And we do have a sense of the future. And so these become blueprints for liberation for all peoples, really kind of restoring who we are as human beings, our full humanity. 
My family has lived in Shishmaraf since time immemorial. Shishmaraf is an island a mile long by a mile and a half long on the Chukchi Sea in the northwestern area of Alaska. There's over 600 residents there who rely on subsistence living lifestyles. We hunt seal and walrus, caribou, and we pick greens and berries that sustain us throughout the year. Anauk Olin is a recent graduate of MIT's Indigenous Language Initiative. Alaska Native people have been very recently colonized. What my mom and my grandmother experienced lives in my DNA, lives in my blood memory. In my mother's generation, many of our cultural ways and our language were literally stolen from us. Children were stolen from their families and were forced to go to boarding schools, to be Christianized, Anglicized, and we were punished for speaking Inupiaq. We were taken from our seasonal subsistence lifestyles and we're recovering from that. My work is recovering our language and our ancestral ways. I don't do it for myself. I do it for the continuation of our people as Inupat. It's so important to recover the Inupiaq language. English, the colonial language, is profoundly inadequate for Anauk's land. When her people were forced to speak it and stop speaking their language, they were having their whole relationship with the world prized away from them. It's not only learning the language, it's unlearning this process of colonization and assimilation that really has had a very deep impact on many of our people. Our language teaches us how to interact with all living things, to the land, and to each other. So our language, Inupiaq, has all of the instructions that we need to live in harmony with the Arctic environment, but also with our kinship. So indigenous languages are like instruction manuals, guiding communities for generations. A lot of our language teaches us how to live in our environment. In Inupiaq, we have maybe up to 70 words that describe ice conditions. And like all languages, it evolves. I really think it's important to also create new terminology in Inupiaq as our environment changes. As temperatures rise, the ice is diminishing. You'll have storm surges, you have melting permafrost. We live in the reality where hundreds and hundreds of feet fall into the ocean every year. We've had hunters fall into the ice because it's rotten or we cannot read the ice. We're not familiar with the conditions. For people who live a subsistence lifestyle, not being able to feed their families from the land is a matter of life and death. Plants aren't growing. Our berry season has changed. So in addition to literally losing land and homes, our food sources are also compromised. We're losing our lives because of this. 
In this context, words can literally determine a community's survival. In English, we use the word erosion. But for Alaska Natives, erosion doesn't really cover what exactly is happening. It's more like catastrophic land collapse. The law in the United States that governs emergency preparedness doesn't include erosion as a hazard that's eligible for funding or governmental support. That means that the law and the programs involved in emergency preparedness have to be updated and they have to be informed by the people who are living in the places that are most impacted by climate change. To navigate this evolving environment, Anauka is helping her community evolve their language. We asked some of the elders if we could create a new term to describe land collapse. And so we created the term ushtak. We were able to get this hazard included in the Alaska State Hazard Mitigation Plan. Anauk is clear. Valuing and protecting indigenous cultures is essential for combating climate change. Many times while I was an MIT student, I would talk with engineers, scientists. They have a lot to say about climate change, how we resolve this mess that we got ourselves into. And I often tell them these technologies have been responsible for getting us into these problems. And as long as we're trying to solve the problem with the same tools, we will never figure it out. You guys have all these fancy technologies, but what you really need to do is give indigenous people their land back. Even though we make up 5% of the world's population, we have reserved 80% of the world's biodiversity. We have a good track record to take care of the earth. As long as our lands are being stolen from us, nothing is gonna change. My name is Dora, and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There's a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. So I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some nice, big, deep breaths with me. So sitting upright, feet connecting to the floor. We'll just be breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathing in, down into the belly, and then letting everything go out through the mouth. And again, breathing in, breathing out. The last breath, breathing in, and letting everything go. Just taking a moment just to notice how those breaths felt. And if you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses, sleep and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. 
go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com using code LONGTIME at checkout. Now, back to the show. Okay, so how are you listening to this? It's probably on your phone or laptop. I don't know about you, but I feel like my dependence on technology increases monthly. It profoundly shapes how I experience my life day to day, and I can't even begin to imagine how it's going to be part of my son's life when he's older. And yet, as Joshua Virasamy pointed out, like so many things in our lives, our devices are part of the colonial project. It got me thinking, how else does the technology that infuses our world and our future enact colonialism? My name is Safia Noble. I'm an associate professor of gender studies at UCLA, and I'm the author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. I chose the word oppression when other words could have been chosen. Bias, discrimination, harm. Oppression, though, seemed to really crystallize how many of the new and emerging algorithms and AI-driven systems work and their consequences in recolonizing people who have been working for hundreds of years to be free and to normalize oppression in ways that are not as obvious as other forms of oppression and colonization in the past. So the technology that is shaping our future might be recolonizing us. You know, I live in Los Angeles, which is a place where the sci-fi imaginary makes its way to films and television shows. We have a lot of work to do in that imaginary that comes out of Hollywood that anthropomorphizes artificial intelligence, makes it seem human, makes it seem natural, makes it seem inevitable and evolutionary. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth many engineering students who take my courses, and they are often devastated when they realize that the work they do as computer scientists and as engineers has a profound impact in society and all kinds of political consequences. Tech is not neutral. The devices and software that we've come to rely on are created by companies whose purpose is to make money. The tech sector puts hundreds of millions of dollars into advertising efforts to convince the public that they are simply a neutral tool and that when these harmful things happen, it's our fault. And of course, most of the technology that infuses our everyday lives is being made by a very select group of people, white guys in Silicon Valley, which means it's coming from a very particular place with very particular ideas, with a specific, very narrow audience in mind. I'll give you an example. A researcher at MIT, Joy Bolamini, along with Timnit Chabru and Deb Raj, did a study that found that facial recognition technologies fail the most 
on Black women's faces. They fail to see our faces. So if you put facial recognition technologies that are faulty, that are very likely to misidentify you and identify you as either the wrong person or not identify you at all because they don't detect your face, and you put them in spaces that are a matter of import, like getting into your home, then you can use these technologies in ways that are incredibly harmful. We know that there's a high degree of over-policing in Black and brown and poor communities. When you live in a city or a neighborhood where you are over-policed and you have a higher statistical likelihood of being arrested just by virtue of living in that community, and you have to post bail, we want to remember that just because you're arrested doesn't mean that you're guilty. The bail is predicated on now an algorithm that gives you a score and decides whether or not you're worthy of being released from jail or not. This can be incredibly discriminatory. And of course, we've seen this over and over again with different kinds of recidivism prediction scores. Black defendants are much more likely to be scored harshly and punitively, where people who might commit misdemeanors are sentenced to long jail terms, and people who are violent criminals who are not Black are released. For Safia, this kind of built-in bias comes down to some major flaws in how the tech sector works. Dr. Timni Jabru, who was the head AI ethicist at Google, who was recently fired for bringing attention to the fact that one of Google's new natural language processing technologies, AI, was profoundly discriminatory. It was racist and sexist in its kind of large-scale deployment. So you have a person who's inside a big company who's responsible, providing the guardrails for the kinds of discriminatory technologies that might be built and deployed on the public. And they're fired. And not only was she fired, but part of her team was fired too. And of course, we have an abysmal track record of hiring African-Americans, Latinos, and Indigenous people that forecloses all kinds of possibilities that could be otherwise imagined into our world. I think one of the most powerful spaces and places where we can decolonize the tech sector is to break up all the monopoly control of just a handful of companies. I mean, centralized control and power, it's like a fundamental feature of colonization. Seven of the 10 most well-capitalized companies on the planet are technology companies. And part of the way they've done that is they've infused all of their products and services into every other sector. Everything from finance and banking, you know, mortgages, educational systems, healthcare systems, all of our human existence has been turned into a new market for technology. Who pays the price ultimately for this kind of unchecked power? It has been mostly women of color and LGBTQ people who have been the whistleblowers about the harms of technology. We sometimes conflate like having a smartphone with freedom. So we have to reimagine freedom too, because freedom has been overdetermined by Silicon Valley and tech companies in their own interests and not in ours. 
So Safia is clear what needs to happen if we want the direction that technology develops in to be good for people other than those running tech companies. Thinking about what kinds of regulations we are going to put in that foreground civil and human rights, foreground consumer protection from harmful products that are flooding the market every single day. I mean, we really have so many places right in our own lives where we can be asking much harder questions because I think many of the people who are in charge of deploying these technologies, you know, they're just under the influence of the salespeople. They really don't have the kind of deep understanding that some of us have about these technologies. So I think that's a place, like just asking very hard questions and refusing and resisting where we can. We began today considering the telescope we look at the past and future through. And again and again, what we've seen through that telescope is how colonialism dominated so much of the world by imposing a monoculture. One culture, one language, one time, one vision of the future. And obliterating anything that stood in the way of this. The people we've been hearing from in the Academy today have all been challenging that by replacing the one with many, with a diversity of cultures, a diversity of time, a diversity of languages, and a diversity of futures. For me, what this means is that in order to truly get long time and to decolonize our future, we have to put down that metaphorical telescope and pick up a kaleidoscope instead. Remember kaleidoscopes, those toys that we play with as kids and are somehow still irresistible to us as adults. Pick one up and you see beautiful, ever-changing patterns. When I talk about looking through a kaleidoscope instead of a telescope, what I'm thinking about is picking up a tool that enables us to see many complex things brightly rather than one thing more clearly. But swapping a telescope for a kaleidoscope is an idea that can be difficult to get our heads around. So let's have a go. Dr. Lonnie Brooks and his collaborator Ahmed Best, an actor, filmmaker, writer, futurist and lecturer, have come up with a card game to help us imagine what decolonized futures could look like. So tell me a bit more about Afro-Rhythms from the Future. What's it all about? I was so influenced by how algorithms needed to be just more representative of us that I coined the term Afro-Rhythm. And so I created Afro-Rhythms from the Future, an imagination forecasting game that really increases and amplifies perspectives on the future from a Black, Indigenous, people of color perspective. All right. We like to say with every algorithm of oppression, there's an Afro-rhythm of liberation. And so this Afro-rhythm is liberating that radical imagination, is liberating your mind and giving you the agency and the ability to create these things that you want to see in your universe and in your world. It is amazing to have a collection of time nerds together. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. the word is. What do you think the word is for a collective of time nerds? Um, maybe this is like a lifetime of time nerds. Yeah. 
I just want to say how we met. Yeah. Ahmed's brother-in-law texted me like a few years ago and said, hey, my brother-in-law is interested in Afrofuturism and love to speak with you. The next line was, and he played Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Right. I was in my car on the way to brunch in Los Angeles. And I was like, let me just call Lonnie Brooks really quick. And it ended up being a three-hour conversation in my car over FaceTime. And the conversation was so great that, and I had already been thinking about doing a, a podcast about the future. And I was like, this is the podcast. Me and Lonnie geeking out over future stuff. Like, this is it. This is what we should do. And that's when we started the Afrofuturist podcast and, and Afrorhythm from the Future um, as the game. And Lonnie's being really nice. I, I kind of bogarted my way into um, that situation. At, and it's only because I always wanted to be a game show host. So I, I, I've been practicing my game show technique since I was a very young child. And so when this thing showed up, I was just like, oh, this is it. This is my window. I get to jump in and be a game show host. And, you know, most of the time, I'd be the only Black person in these rooms where people talk about these enormous ideas about the future. And I noticed that in all of these conversations, Black people didn't exist. Yeah. And so whenever I'd bring that up in these rooms, in these conversations, everyone would immediately get incredibly fatigued. Like, nobody really wants to talk about it. And I always wanted to talk about it. And when we talk about Afrofuturism or Afrorhythms, we're not separating anyone out. That's, that's not a way of Indigenous thinking. That's not a way of African thinking, right? It is all about inclusiveness. And so we look at Afro as the birthplace of civilization is in, in where all the other civilizations have grown. And we're drawing on that ancient wisdom to help inform and bring the world together as an earthling community. When we start taking it from there, the sky's the limit as far as our imagination is, as far as our creativity lies. And it should be fun. We like to say eradicating white supremacy is fun and it's good for the kids too. <laughs> I am really excited to play it. I think we should play the game. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> our roles in this game, Dr. Lonnie is the librarian. He creates the context. I'm the seer. I'm the guide. I take you through the game, take you through the rules, and then I help you synthesize the ideas, the creation part. The fear usually is, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to play. There are no wrong answers. We are always, as we say in improv comedy, yes anding everything. <laughs> so Ella, close your eyes. Yeah. Take a deep breath in and out. And let that deep breath move through the right side of your brain. And when you imagine that oxygen swirling the right side of your brain, think about a lightning storm. We begin our game with tension cards. Dr. Lon, do you want to explain what the tensions are? Yes. Uh, the tension cards represent what we might think of as driving forces or uncertainties about the future. We don't know how it's going to turn out. And we choose two from them. So what does a world look like with more or less decolonization in it, African innovation, magic, black leadership, surveillance, and more or less stories of spirituality and ecology. These are the cards that are going to frame our universe. Two cards that spoke to me immediately were one decolonizing nice. and the other around magic. Those are the two. Ooh. Decolonizing magic. Right, put those Ooh. two together and there's no more Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's our universe. 
So, most popular magazine. Now that we placed our world, we get to make things. We get to create things. And so this is how we create things on the world. You take an inspiration. Our inspirations are transcendence, pleasure activism, disability justice. What's hitting you today, Ella? I'm going to pick the inspiration that feels most uncomfortable. Yes. Uh, in the spirit of vulnerability. So let's go for pleasure activism. You take an inspiration, you put it with an object. Our objects are medicine, public park, library. Let's go for a library. Yes, a pleasure activism library. Give me my library card <laughs> right now. <laughs> yes. Those might be some books I'll never bring back. <laughs> So let's think about Pleasure Activism Library that has an enormous amount of magic, an enormous amount of decompliments. Now we get to make artifacts and put them in our world. So let's make some stuff. Hokey dokey. Creating the future is a practice. It's not an intangible process that is only available to a certain few in the know. It's something that you can get really, really good at, right? And what it does is it creates these new pathways in your brain. What is this pleasure activism library? And don't think of a library just as a building, you know? A library just means a, a place where we store information. So when... We're literally wired to think and imagine the future and to tap it. And so the more that we can tap and create like these synaptic connections about the future, we can create these cognitive prosthetics limbs in the mind to imagine the future. So when when you were just talking then, the first thing that came to mind was like an accumulation of female voices from throughout history who were singing about pleasure. Yes. What are we moving through? What are we decolonizing? We're, I mean, we're decolonizing our bodies. Yes. From what? What are we decolonizing our bodies from? Fear. Of what? Women's potency. Uh, it also heals the past traumas, right? Imagining new futures really heals past traumas. We've turned it into something shameful, sinful. Shame. That's it. Shame. You know, we have to get to those uncomfortable places. This is what, this is how we define decolonizing, right? We're healing through this trauma. Why do you think those shackles were put on? So go to that uncomfortable place. I mean, the, the thing that came to mind was white women have imprisoned other women of color. Yeah. Like, it feels like... To get to me. this place where we can be liberated. Not forgetting the trauma, but healing through it. And what are those songs that we are accumulating in, in our choir? I think they're, they're songs of awakening. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Forecasting games can actually create alternative memories of the future that are plausible, that see beyond white supremacy, see a greater legacy. We can actually experience healing across generations. You know, and that, that old saying, you know, I became a man, I gave away childish things. I hate that saying, right? It's so important that we give ourselves license to play and imagine. Play, games, media, art are ways to tap and extend those synaptic connections that really form the future in our minds. The that came to mind was like um, a big shower that you walk through and that the sound of the voices 
rain down yes. on you yes. and you hearing all of these voices of women throughout our existence kind of sing of their potency you get connected with yours yeah it's like a sound bath of feminine council voices yeah exactly yeah i think as as The future for most of us feels like that something that's done to you, right? People try to future all over you. It's from this idea that, you know, billionaires only have access to the future. Those who are very well off have access to the future. But through this game as a tool, we realize that we have agency over the future that we want to live in. We can create these things. What we do now is... We send our pleasure activism library to the universe to represent us as a planet. And that is how you play Afro-Rhythms from the future. God, I love it. That's it. Boom. <laughs> I'm trying to find the words. It's such a, a new journey. The use of visualization the support of creativity, the non-judgment, like your non-judgment throughout gave permission to be as fantastical as I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've been so lucky today to get to experience this game and you've created an Afro Rhythms experience for the Longtime Academy listeners. Yes, we've taken the game And we've synthesized it into uh, a meditation where you get to create, ideate, build a universe, build a world, build artifacts. And that is a practice that you can do every day to get you into this space, right? We can focus and curate our experience more towards liberation. And I think that's what this movement has shown us over this past year, that there is a way to curate a liberation experiment and having that be popular culture. You know, even to end slavery, it took a conversation and a series of conversations to do that. And the conversations that start today affect what happens 500 years from now. So the conversations start today. Today in the Academy, I've been reminded about how getting long time can help us have these conversations, both within ourselves and with others out in the world. Conversations that aren't always easy, but are so important to have. And as Lonnie and Ahmed have just revealed, play, games, art and culture are crucial. And that's why in our next and final episode of the Longtime Academy, we'll focus on culture and why the TV we watch, the books we read, and even the ads that we skim through are pivotal to the future of life on Earth. I'll see you there. And for now, I'll leave you with some final words from Ahmed that have really stayed with me. There's a a saying that's going around now, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I really love that saying because we are. I always looked at Dr. Martin Luther King as a futurist. Dr. King would say, we as a people will get to the promised land. He's not projecting himself in that, right? He's talking about future generations. I would love to talk to my ancestors who were enslaved and say, 
look what I am now. Look what I've become. Your fight, your grit, your courage, your imagination produced me. Thank you for not giving up. Please share this episode with someone you think would be interested in getting long time. And come on over to thelongtimeacademy.com to connect with me, get involved with our Longtime Academy community, and find tools to deepen your journey. You'll find links to that, everyone you've met today, and even a place to leave us a voice message in the show notes. We listen to them all. The Longtime Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Longtime Project, and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh, with producers Madeline Finlay and Ivor Manley. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. Our original music is by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie, Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier. <laughs>